Our text this morning comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. The word of God speaks. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have, they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to, love to get a chance to meet you after, after service. Uh, shake your hand and get your name. Um, but really glad you are here. Uh, this week we are beginning, or this week we're, we're ending this section in Genesis. So we started uh, a, little, or a couple of months ago walking through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then we're going to pick back up in Genesis chapter 12 starting a couple of months from now. Uh, next week, we're going to be stepping into a series looking at Advent, as, as Derek alluded to, and, uh, and at the beginning of the year, walking through some things we're really excited about as a church as well. Um, but here's what I want us to do. I don't want us to roll back on our heels this morning at the end of this section of Genesis, because in many ways, um, this story becomes kind of the capstone for this whole section in Genesis. And it's not something that has a message for somebody that lived a long time ago. What happens in this text actually says a lot to us today. And so what I want us to do is hear from God as he speaks to us. Uh, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray and let's ask God to speak to us today. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us from your word? We don't need to hear from commentators. We don't need to hear from just random ideas. We need to hear from you. Spirit of God, where we need to hear this word in the, in the promise that's, that's, that's resident in it, um, would you open our hearts to hear that? God, I'm praying that we would see things different when we leave than we did coming in because of what you've shown us here. Open our eyes, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We love origin stories, don't we? I mean, all you got to do is look at what's coming out from Hollywood. And let's just admit, most of the movies that have been coming out lately are trash. There's a couple of good ones. But there's always, it's always fascinating to watch these origin stories that emerge. It's like we're so captivated by certain characters, whether they're heroes or villains, that we then have to do a, another movie to give us their backstory, right? So whether it's Batman... Uh, and and uh, Christopher Nolan's work there, or whether it's the the whatever Disney was doing with Maleficent, uh, we, we get these backstories, these these origin stories for these characters that we either love or we hate. And I think the reason we love origin stories is that it gives us more of the background, which we're always kind of interested in the juicy details, rightly. But but really, in one way, what it does is it brings us into the motivations of the characters, doesn't it? 
we find things in their stories. We find things in what's, what happened before the stories that we're familiar with that help us know why they did what they did. To help us understand why they acted the way they did. And it also, not only does it, does it give us a sense of their motivation, it also like foreshadows what's to come because we can always see in those origin stories the hint and the seed of what's coming next, don't we? There's, there's a sense in which Genesis 1 to 11 has been a series of origin stories. Chapter 1, talking about the origin of the universe. How, why there's something in rather, rather than nothing. Genesis 2 talks about the origin of mankind and the mission that God has given it. It, it, it gives us the origin for marriage and society and, and what it means to fellowship with God. Genesis 3 doesn't introduce the backstory of a character, but it introduces the idea of sin as sin steps into the story and it corrodes and it corrupts and sin gives birth to evil and to suffering in all kinds of different ways. It's the origin story. We see the origin story of the ideas of both sacrifice and judgment. And through these long list of names that many of us skip when we read our Bible, we see actually the origin of nations and of peoples. Genesis 1 to 11 is captive, or is filled with all these origin stories. Well, we have another one today. That in many ways, Genesis 11 is, is an origin story that, that might actually surprise us when, until we step back and look at the whole of Scripture and understand what it's opening up for us. But, but concretely, on the face of it, this origin story, this, this story of Babel in Genesis 11, is an origin story of the ancient city of Babylon and what will become known as the Babylonian people. This is the beginning of what is now known as Babylon. Um, so what we want to do is look at this because I think what we're going to realize is that this isn't simply a message that we need to hear so that it helps us as history buffs understand how these two are connected. But actually, it says something way deeper about things that are rooted in the hearts and souls of each of us in this room. And so I want us to do a little bit of work here. So let's, let's start with what's going on in this text or the question before us, what's going on in Babel? Let's look, starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, we already read all nine verses, and you'll notice there's not a ton of detail, is there? It didn't go into a ton of nuanced detail. And what I want to point out, though, is words are very carefully selected and very carefully chosen, and they are packed with meaning. And so we might see one word that we might tend to skip, but actually there's a reason that word is there. And when we read here that all these things are happening in the East, we are reminded that since Genesis 4, humanity has left the garden and is all working East of Eden. In other words, displaced from the place that God had created for them. That, that, while, that while humanity was supposed to be sent out into all the world, that's, that's part of God's commission, when it uses the word east, it's referring to this distance from God. So it's a hint that something going on here is not quite right. Look at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face 
of the whole earth. You see, what we see in Babel is these people have assembled and they're going to take life into their own hands. They're going to create a life that they fashion. They're going to put their hands to work to create something that they can glory in, something that's going to last. They're going to, with their own hands, bring forth progress as a civilization, or at least that's what they think they're going to do. And at first we might go, what's wrong in this? Because I think it's important to recognize what, is, what, what we're not saying is wrong. We're not saying it's wrong to develop technology. It's kind of weird to think of the brick as technology, but it actually was. There was a day in which this was a new idea, that we can pack this mud together and we can blast it with a furnace and solidify it and we can use it to build. This was a new technology. The, the problem here in Genesis is not the technology, though. The problem is not that they're building a city. We see over and over through the scripture, cities are a good thing. God even sets up the city of David. The, the, the Jerusalem is a city that God institutes in order to be a, a central hub for both worship and commerce in Israel. So the problem is not that there's a city. And the problem is clearly not that they're unified and working together. That actually is something that scripture talks about as a good thing. So what is wrong? What's wrong is not necessarily the actions themselves, in and of themselves, It's the motivation behind the actions. The problem in Babel is not one of technology. It's not one of constructing a city. The problem in in Babel is their hubris. Because fundamentally, the people of Babel are like, look at us, we can accomplish this, we can do it. That's what's going wrong in Babel. I think this hubris plays itself out in three different ways I want to point our attention to. The first is that, that Babel, what, what, their hubris is displayed in their purpose and their effort. So let's remember that when God has, has, called, has, has, has created Adam and Eve and he has created humanity, he has given them a mission and he said, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So move out. Don't clump up. Move out and subdue the earth. What do the people of Babel say? No thanks, we're gonna stay right here. We're not gonna move out, we're gonna stay here. We're gonna pull in, we're gonna pull tight, we're not not gonna subdue the world, we're gonna subdue and create our own little domain. They are, with their own effort, gonna accomplish their own purposes, putting aside the very thing that God has called humanity to do. You see that? The second thing, the second way we see their hubris on display is that they are after it for their name and their glory. Do you read Genesis and go, you know what, who we should worship? Those little peons that are running around the earth making messes of stuff. No, all of Genesis brings us to see God in his majesty, in his glory, and who he is. We're, we're, We're caught off guard by the grandeur of his being and his name. But what does Babel want to do? They want to stand up and say, look at us. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to establish ourselves. We're going to create our own identity. We're going to create our own unity. Let us make a name for ourselves. The third way we see their hubris is that they set their own rules and their own terms. 
See, when they build this temple or this tower, we, we, we may think, is this just a watchtower? No, this is actually, uh, this is understood as what's, what's called as a ziggurat. A ziggurat was a religious temp, uh, a building that was meant to have stair steps that ascended to the heavens. The whole point was to build this massive monument and it, and it was a way of them going up in order to access the divine. It was a religious building. It was a religious building. Next to the ziggurat would have been a temple in which they actually worshiped the gods. But the ziggurat was this stair step that was supposed to give them access to the gods. So what they're building here is is not just a tower. They're essentially saying this, we will get to God our way. Watch us. Do you see this? So the problem is not just that they're building a tower. The problem is why they're building this tower. They want to build it to the heavens. They want to approach God on their own Terms. As a matter of fact, everything that Babel wants to do, the people of Babel, they want life on their terms. Not God's terms. On ours. Here's how Victor Hamilton says it in his, his uh, uh, commentary on Genesis. Looked at it this way, the sin of Babel is exactly the same as the first sin in the garden. Don't miss that. He's drawing a connection here between what's happening in Babel and what happened in Genesis 3. The divine will and word is abandoned. One's own desire becomes most important and doing my will takes precedent over doing God's will. Eve and the tower builders think alike. You see, we just said it a couple weeks ago in which God brings this flood to judge sin in the world and it looks like he's gonna clean the place up. We're gonna start over. We have one righteous man. We have his family. This is gonna go well. Well, it went well for a couple of verses, right? We saw this last week. Then Moses gets drunk. He's naked. Things are, things are haywire. I mean, it's, it's all like Jersey Shore stuff. And, and, but here what we see is that we see that the seed of what happened the seed of sin, the seed of, what, the seed of what happened in the garden is still implanted in the soul of these people at Babel and they want to do things their own way. But what's interesting is that the, the text makes a turn here in what they see as a place, a, 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 a thing indicating their significance, the text is gonna semi-mock. And so you won't necessarily hear the humor here, but there's humor in this verse. Look at verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Do you catch it? The reader is basically saying this. You built a tower to heaven, right? You're going to get all the way to God, right? Well, you know what God has to do? He has to stoop down, squint his eyeballs, maybe pull out his binoculars in order to see your massive tower. You think you can get to God. And he has to stoop even to see your monstrosity of a building. There is a futility in what Babel is trying to accomplish that the text exposes right here. No attempt to live, God, to, to live life on their terms to create some massive monument to their name actually matters anything. God has to stoop even to see it. There's no competition. So what does this have to do with us? I mean, I'm assuming that you're waiting for that because that's what we talk about every week, right? We don't, we don't just study this and take a couple of notes and now you can go take your exam when you get home. No, no, no. The, 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 tech, the Bible was written to the Israel, but it was written for us, remember? So why is this story here for us? What's the significance? 
I think in order to do that, we need to take a bit of a step back and look at the, under, the way in which Babylon is seen throughout the scriptures. Again, we're talking about an origin story. That Babel here stands as an origin story for the kingdom of Babylon or the empire of Babylon that actually what we see in the text expands to something even bigger and even more important. You see, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see regular references to Babylon. You'll see it in terms of understanding its history in Ezra and Daniel. Both Ezra and Daniel will speak about the time in which Babylon has now, has now rebuilt and reconstituted as a massive empire and actually takes over Israel, dominates them, and pulls some of their, their best and brightest back into Babylon as exiles. Daniel's among them. And so Israel has been now taken captive by Babylon. They've been dominated by Babylon. The Babylon here is seen as an enemy. Well, if I look at the prophets, the writing of the prophets, both Isaiah and Jeremiah say this, Ezekiel speaks to it. Also, many of the minor prophets speak, either speak to Babylon to, to, to bring, say what God wants to say to Babylon, his judgment against them, or it speaks about Babylon by telling Israel, don't be like Babylon. So that's all the way through the Old Testament. Here's an example. In Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah speak, speaking about Babylon says this, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will execute judgment upon her, Babylon's images, and through all her land. And the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven. Do you see this? He's alluding now to Babel that they're going to mount up to heaven. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come down from me against her, declares the Lord. Here's what God is saying. is just as it was in Genesis 11, it is now. Babylon thinks they're strong, thinks they can ascend, but they won't win. My judgment is coming for Babylon. You see this? But we pick this up also in the New Testament. If you turn to Acts 2, you, you see this, this way in which, and it's not explicit, the, the text doesn't even mention Babel specifically, but, there, but there's a really fascinating parallels here between the fact that Babel is dispersed as a single language, uh, the ability to communicate across a single language is destroyed. What happens in Acts 2? He pulls all the nations together and gives them a single language in the language of tongues. That in the same way that Babel was dispersed and scattered, it's reversed in Acts 2 as now the people are gathered and given a common language. We also see this in the book of Revelation. It's particularly chapter 18, but also throughout Revelation. John is writing and he uses Babylon a lot. Now remember, this is hundreds of years after Babylon has ceased to be any kind of a, a thriving empire at all. And yet it uses this language of Babylon being the strong enemy against God. What John is doing is he's connecting the idea of Babylon with the, with the theological reality of what the Bible calls the world. In other words, the world in opposition to God himself. We see this in 1 Peter 5, I think, in a really fascinating way, and I actually want to turn our attention to there. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 John 5. We're going to, we're going to hit this little verse that we almost always skip when we're reading 1 Peter. Peter's writing to people that are in exile. He's writing about the fact that they are living in exile. He's saying in the same way that Israel was in exile in Babylon and later how Israel was in, it was in uh, exile in Persia, 
In the same way, you are exile in the world. You are exiles in the world, and God has called you to live faithfully in a land that's not yours. And then in the, the end of his, in the, end of his uh, the, the book, like he always does, he always has these commendations, like, hey, tell so-and-so hi. Hey, so-and-so actually says hi to you from here, right? And we often skip over these verses. We shouldn't. And this is an example of why we shouldn't. Look at verse 13. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now this, this ought to strike us as weird because Babylon is not any kind of place anymore. It, is, it has been laying in ruins for hundreds of years at this point. So why this allusion to Babylon? The, the study notes in the ESV study Bible, I think are really helpful on this point. I want us to look at that. It says this, she who is at Babylon who is chosen almost certainly refers to the church in Rome not a literal woman. Although the Babylon of the Old Testament was in ruins, the reference resonates with the Old Testament where Babylon represents a center of earthly power opposed to God. In a Peter's day, that city would have been Rome. The Old Testament background to Babylon reminds believers that though they are exiles, they are elect exiles who will receive the promised inheritance. See, I want you to draw the connection here that the very seed at the heart of what's happening in Babel grows to blossom in the kingdom of Babylon in which Babylon puts themselves up as against God and against God's people. And now the New Testament writers are saying the same thing, the same seed of a thought that was in the heart of Babel, the same seed of a thought that was in the heart of Babylon is now in the heart of the world in which you live. You now live in Babel. That in many ways, our life today in the world is living in Babylon. Jesus doesn't use Babylon language here, but he does regularly talk about the world as a category, right? The world, not as the place in which we live, not about the earth, but actually this way of being in the world, as to, to walk in the way of the world is to walk in opposition to the way of Jesus. Look at John 15, verse 8. It's, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, speaking of this idea of the world, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What he's saying here is the very seed of, of, of hatred towards God that re resided in the heart of Babel now resides in the heart of the world. In essence, he's saying this, we all live in Babylon now. Or another way to put it, there is no neutral world. There is no neutral world. The way of Babel is the way of the world. Just as Babel said, we are going to make a name for ourselves. What does the world do? The world is constantly enticing us to create our own identity, set yourself apart from others, build yourself up, point to yourself, curate your Instagram feed, make sure that people see that you look nice on TikTok. Like we're going to do whatever we can so that people think good of us. Curate yourself. The way of the world. Just like Babel says, we're going to progress through our efforts. We're going to put our hand to the plow and we're going to create something. What do we do in our world? We're going to elevate the people that we think are good. We're going to try to vote them into office. 
Too bad we can't agree on who's good. We're going to take the people that are bad and we're going to try to push them down and marginalize them. But there's all these people in the middle that really aren't really that good and aren't really that bad. But we're going to, we're going to try to just muddle our way through. And the reality is like we're trying to create our own little kingdom and it won't work. In the same way that Babel wanted it, they wanted to, to live life on their own terms with their own rules. What do we do? We take biblical ethics that have been given us by God, by our creator, that the, the, the one who most knows how our bodies should work and our relationships should work and our society should work, the one who has given us these rules, these ethics for our good, we now go, no, God, I think we'll start over. I think we've got a better idea. We don't need your plan, God, for sexuality. We'll create our own. We don't need your way of seeing possessions. We'll do our own. We don't need your understanding of how to relate to our enemies. We've got that one. Do you, do you see this? The, the essence of the world is the essence of Babel. We'll do it our way. Friends, if we're, if we're not living in a neutral world, like I'm saying we're not, it's a little bit like we're in a, it's a, little bit like we're in a kayak in a river that's with a fast moving water. You sit in a kayak in a river and you don't paddle anywhere, where are you going? Are you standing still? No. The stream is carrying you along. Friends, we live in a world in which we are being, if we're not careful, we are being carried along deeper and deeper into the ways of Babel. We need to be aware of neutrality is not an option here. Many of us are moving and we're not even aware of it. Many of us, our hearts have grown cold to the things of God because we're just unaware of the fact that the, the world around us is moving us to see ourselves as the center and moving us further and long to see that we have to create our identity and we begin to get caught up in the same way of living. We live like Babylonians. Because we live in Babylon. The warning here is to recognize there's no neutrality here. And that we all are being carried away if we are not careful. Let me ask it a different way. In what ways in your life right now are you trying to build a ziggurat of your own? to build a tower of your own, to access God on your own terms. I can do it, God. I can find you. I'm, I'm gonna come after you in my own way. I'm gonna stack up works in order to get to you. How have we done that? What are ways in which those of us in this room, how do we go about making a name for ourselves. Now, this may mean that you're trying to get your name in lights, and it might mean that you're trying to hide in the corners. It shows up in lots of different ways. But where are the ways in which you are trying to create your own identity, fashion your own self to make a name for yourself? What are ways in which you have said to God, I don't necessarily like your way of doing things, God. I've got some ideas of my own. Friends, where has Babel gotten into our souls? Now, those are sobering questions if we're willing to do the work. Those are really sobering questions if we're willing to do the work. But if that's the end of the story, what are we left with other than trying to do Babel better? 
Because what we need right here is not just better reaction. We need God to respond. And so let's look, before we leave, at how God responds to Babel, which will give us an understanding of how he responds to us. Look at verse 6 in Genesis 11. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. I want you to notice what God, how God didn't respond. The first is he didn't respond by hitting the reset button. In other words, like flood 2.0. He, he, didn't, he, already, promised, he already promised Noah he wasn't going to flood the earth again. So he's not going to come back and go, well, we hit reset once. Let's go hit reset again, and maybe it'll take the next time. Not what he does. We also see that he doesn't just walk away and go, well, I tried. Tried to clean up this mess. Let's just torch it and go on. It's not what he does. So how does God respond? God responds, listen, friends, in judgment by making a way for redemption. He's going to bring judgment to bear on Babylon in a way that opens up redemption. Let's look at the the first, there are three ways I think that God responds here. The first is this. God responds with his gracious thwarting. His gracious thwarting. It's kind of interesting that God could have just stepped in and like took a hammer to the tower and kind of smashed smithereens. He could have sent some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, seismic event to take it all down and kind of capture it from the outside in. Instead, what does he do? He like comes into the middle of them and sets up something that disperses it from the inside out. He thwarts their plans by getting in the way of their unity. You see that? They're unified against him, so he just disrupts that. He thwarts their plans. They have great plans, and they can't accomplish it anymore because God graciously thwarts them. Why do I say graciously? Because one of the worst things God could ever do for any one of us is to let us get away with our efforts to build our own towers and make our own name for ourselves. Babel may say, God, leave us alone. And that's the worst thing that could have happened to them. And it's the worst thing that could have happened that could happen to us. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 tells us this. Paul says that when God's judgment comes in finality, it comes by giving us over to our lusts and desires. In other words, when God backs away and says, have at it, that's his judgment. But when he comes in and thwarts it, when he gets in the way, when he meddles, it's his grace. The second way in which he responds is through his merciful election. If you were to just read through Genesis and, and read chapter 11 straight into chapter 12, you would notice immediately something that gets picked up. In Genesis 11, the people of Babel are saying, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and God thwarts that. What do we see in Genesis 12? Genesis 12, we see God call Abram and say, I'm going to make your name great. The two are meant to contrast. You see, God could have walked away from the whole bit. He could have walked away from Abram. 
Abram didn't have something to offer God that was special. God chose Abram out of his sovereign grace. He elected Abram. And as he elected Abram and gave him a new name, Abraham, and and he called his descendants Israel, he called out a people to be his people. And now what he has done is in the same way that he called out Israel to be separate, he has called his church, those that are followers of Jesus, to be separate, to live different. He has elected us out as a people, and he has given us a name, and he has given us his presence. He's given us a relationship with him. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam say it this way. In this light, it should not surprise us that God promises to make Abraham's offspring a great nation a kingdom in the proper sense of the word. In this way, we have a contrast between two kinds of kingdoms that are part of this world, especially since the fall. On the one hand, we have the kingdom that's associated with Babel and all that stands in opposition to God. Do you see what he's saying? That there's a kingdom like Babel that falls in the way of Babel, that this kingdom is associated with all that stands in opposition to God. But on the other hand, we have another king kingdom associated with God's saving initiative and sovereign grace, which will fulfill the role of Adam, bringing salvation to the nations and to display to the world the kind of relationships that God originally intended for all of humanity. There's no neutral ground, friends. There's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, or as we could say here, the kingdom of Babel. And there's a kingdom of God's people. God is working to bring redemption to his creation. The third thing we see of God's response is his abiding presence. Again, God could have walked away from the whole deal, but he didn't. He was there in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. He walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And even after their sin, he clothes them and you can see his presence hovering among them. We see his presence hovering uh, over Noah and the ark and all that's happening there. We see God show up in the land of Israel. And here's a fascinating one. In, In Genesis 28, there's this little thing that we often will skip over. When Jacob is on his way from his father's home to his uncle's to go to go to work, and he'll end up meeting his spouse there. On the way, he has a dream. And what's in that dream but what we call Jacob's ladder? It's a stairway in which the angels are ascending and descending. And immediately you think about a tower, this ziggurat built in Babel. Man's attempt to get to God, God crushes, but God says, I'm not abandoning. I still am working back and forth to be present with my people. We see this ultimately in Jesus, that Jesus takes on human flesh and dwells among his people. We see that before he ascends to the Father, he gives the Holy Spirit to be present with us. His presence, friends, is our gift and our grace. God doesn't abandon us like he could have. He is with us. So God is fundamentally working in two ways. He's working to judge sin, the world, or to say, to judge Babel. And he is working to redeem his people. That's what God's up to. He will judge sin. The Bible tells us that no hidden thing will be left hidden. All will be exposed. And he also says that all sin will be judged. But in the midst of that, he says, but because of the work of Jesus, 
Those that are united to Jesus, his death takes the place of our death. And we get his life in return. In other words, friends, we are redeemed, not because we, we did a better job than Babel, but that we never engaged in the whole process to begin with. We were rescued by a God who came after us. That's the gospel. So there are two, there are two ways in the world. There's no neutrality. And we need to recognize that Babel has often gotten into our hearts. And so here's where, as we close, I just want us to ask this question. Where has Babel gotten into us? Whether we, whether we say that we follow Jesus, or maybe, in the, maybe you're in the room and you, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't even, you wouldn't profess faith in Jesus anyway. I want to ask, how has Babel got into you? Where are the ways in which you are building towers and trying to make a name for yourself? What do you need to repent of today? And what does it look like to not walk in the way of Babel, but to walk in the way of Jesus? That's why this story is in our Bibles, is to warn us away from the world and to lead us to Jesus. Would you pray with me?